0: Welcome to 4D, Deep Dive into Degenerative Diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA. The information in this podcast is meant for the benefit of a physical therapists. It is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and or treatment. Individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner with questions. I'm Ken Vinaco, a physical therapist practicing in the outpatient neuroclinic at Rhode Island Hospital, and I serve on the podcast committee of the DD SIG. Today, we are talking about post polio syndrome, also known as PPS, as a continuation of our rare degenerative diseases podcast series. I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Carolyn DeSilva, who's a professor in the DPT program at Texas Women's University at the Houston campus. I'd like to give you the opportunity to share a little bit more about yourself, though, Carolyn, and thank you very much for being here.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been a physical therapist for longer than most of y'all have probably been alive. I've been a PT for 40 years and I'm still practicing clinically, as well as being a professor at TWU. I have worked at TIER, uh, a long time ago, I worked at TIER as a staff therapist for a few years, and then I left and went to another place. And then I've been on faculty at Texas Women's University for 27 years. Um, I've been at TIER and their outpatient post-polio clinic for the past 26 years. um, And I just kind of fell into that position I had been at TIER setting up some student visits with the clinicians, and they just said, hey, you know, uh, the the person that is in the post-polio clinic is going to be leaving. Would you be interested in in, uh, taking over for her? I was like, well, no, not really, but I'll ask around. That was my response. And then I went back to the office at TWU and, you know, kind of chatted up a few people. And I thought, you know, I'm actually more qualified than the current workers that I had at that particular time, it's like, well, I could do that, I guess. And then I had no idea that I would fall in love with working with this population and stick with it for 26 years. Um, I I don't know how much of it is, I kind of like to root for the underdogs. Um, and I the funny thing is when y'all invited me for this this talk, I had never really considered post-polio syndrome being a quote unquote rare condition although certainly it's a very uncommon uh, diagnosis to work with, it's very much, I'm learning more of a niche type of profession uh, or population to work with, but I never really considered it rare until y'all asked me and I thought actually it is pretty rare and that's why these folks have a very difficult time um, finding appropriate healthcare and appropriate physical therapy as well.
0: So, so interesting, Carolyn. Tell me about the clinic you work at right now and really how it got started
1: Tier actually started as a polio hospital um back saying. in about 1959 please don't quote me on that but it's about 1959 it was during the epidemic time and they you know had patients that were hospitalized they had people who were in iron lungs and and then the the patients would come back for checkups you know, of course polio affected a lot of um, children at the time so they were going through growth spurts and needing to be reevaluated on a regular basis and all that kind of stuff and so then um, polio kind of goes away in the United States with the advent of the vaccines and things and then tier evolved to then become a spinal cord injury hospital and then as the years progressed and they started taking patients with other diagnosis including brain injury MS and those kinds of things um, and then in the 80s one of the physiatrists that worked at Tier, Dr. Halstead, who is now in the Washington D.C. area, um, he was a polio survivor, and he was having a difficult time keeping up with the work demands of being a staff, a staff physician at Tier, working with patients with spinal cord injury and um, and such. And um, he uh, he's like, "Well, I'm having all these problems," so he started talking to other people, and he started hearing about other people. Having more problems as well, uh, many years after their um, recovery from polio, and so they started um, seeing patients in the clinic um, that were polio survivors, and then that's when the impetus to have the actual diagnosis post-polio syndrome actually defined, and um, for it to become a true medical diagnosis and have a its own ICD code number that goes with it and those kinds of things.
0: Mm. I- that is a great segue to for my next question here, Carolyn, which I think it could be helpful for listeners who are unfamiliar with what post-polio syndrome really means. and, and maybe you could provide some background on the disease and what makes post-polio syndrome different than like polio syndrome, for instance.
1: Well, that's a very good question, and it's a question that a lot of people have confusion about, even people who are polio survivors. So it's important for us to remember that polio, as an enterovirus, uh, attacked the body through the GI tract, and it was absorbed by the body. And then uh, most people who caught polio actually caught just a viral disease that you know maybe gave them a fever, some muscle aches, that kind of thing, and no paralysis. Uh, for a very small percentage of people who caught the polio, it actually invaded their nervous system and went into their cerebral spinal fluid and was interestingly very selective in how it attacked the nervous system in that it really targeted the anterior horn cells in the spinal cord, which are our lower motor neurons. Um, it, Because it was floating around the CSF, it also you know, was swimming around over the surface of the brain and those kinds of things. And um, there is some there is some evidence of some level of encephalitis that occurred, but the most famous and most common presentation that we see would be the lower motor neuron disease. So it caused a flaccid uh, type of paralysis or weakness. Um, and it also tended to be very asymmetric and very sporadic in how it attacked those anterior horn cells. So for example, um, in, not any other diagnosis that I can think of neurologically would you have somebody who, for example, uh, not to bore people with manual muscle test scores too much, but let's say you've got you know hip flexors at at a five out of five and quads at five out of five and you've got an anterior tib at a zero out of five and then you've got uh, your toe extensors at four out of five and then you've got your inverters at you know five out of five and like where did the zero come from and then you've got a three in the hamstrings and you know whatever so. And and very asymmetric from a proximal distal, but also asymmetrical from a left right standpoint. Um, so it can present in a whole lot of very very different ways. So anyway, you know the epidemics in the United States happened. There were two main epidemics, but the most recent one that mostly affects us because the patients are still alive um, happened in the 1940s and 50s. So currently, most of the folks in the United States that are polio survivors. Um, if they're American-born, um, are going to be in their late 60s, 70s, 80s, and above. Um, however, with the amount of immigration that we have in the United States, and especially with Houston being such a diverse city, we do get a number of people who are foreign-born. And so we've I've, I've had patients in the clinic as young as 17, and certainly in their 20s, and then you know in their 30s as well. But the bulk of our patients are going to be in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, And so people, you know, if you caught polio when you were six months old or six years old, there's a whole lot of growth that happens, you know, as you, become an older child, adolescent and adult. And then, you know, they, they might've had a limp and maybe they were an AFO and used crutches or whatever. And then they, they maybe had some surgeries to help them to get out of their braces and that kind of thing. And then they, you know, they wind up going to college, they wind up, you know, raising families, they go to work and they do all sorts of things. And then as they get older, um, then some of them, and it's, it, it's, guess that about up to half of the polio survivors will continue just to age with whatever weakness they have. And yes, you know, as we know that as everybody ages, we tend to lose muscle cells, we tend to lose nerve cells and those kinds of things with the typical aging process. Um, But with up to half of the folks that are polio survivors, they can develop new muscle weakness and it can be in muscles that they knew were weak, but it can also be in weakness that they did not know were weak. Uh, from the original polio onset, um, there's a whole cluster of symptoms that can go with the syndrome. So, but the new muscle weakness is the hallmark thing that has to be present. Um, And then it can be um, any combination of some of the other things. So, you know, along with muscle weakness, there can be some dysphagia, for example, there can be some breathing difficulties, there can be fatigue issues, there can be pain, it can be muscular pain. And certainly if you've been walking with a limp for the last Forty years, it's easy to see how people can develop pain syndromes related to degenerative joint changes and those kinds of things as well.
0: So many good nuggets to unpack there, Carolyn. Oh my gosh, that's that was great. And so it sounds like I'll hit on a couple points that you you talked on there. Sounds like one that a small portion of folks who you know contracted polio back in say the the 40s 50s they actually go on to develop like neurologic and sort of muscular impairments. And then I wanted to ask you, is there a certain percentage of folks who developed polio and developed weakness at that point that go on to develop post-polio syndrome? Is that a small percentage of folks that go on to develop post-polio syndrome? A large majority of the folks?
1: So it's it's up to about 50% will go on to develop post-polio syndrome. According to the literature, there are um, there are some predictors of who will be most likely to have post-polio syndrome. Um, so females uh, are one, one group that tend to have more post-polio syndrome than males. Um, also, the people that had more profound involvement initially um, are at higher risk of developing the post-polio syndrome in later life as well. Mm-hmm. There was a real interesting small study that came out of Italy that was actually funded by Post Polio Health International. And they looked at um, two groups of polio survivors. One was a group of polio survivors that did not have a diagnosis of post polio syndrome. And there was another group that did have post polio syndrome. And they took samples of their cerebrospinal fluid and in. The polio survivors who did not have the diagnosis of post-polio syndrome, none of them had any polio virus remnants in their cerebral spinal fluid. However, about 75% of the people who had post-polio syndrome had polio viral remnants floating around in their CSF. And so there's some thought, and this is a fairly new idea, Um, that it's not just an overuse type of syndrome, but that there could be some level of like chronic inflammation that comes from just having these polio remnants there. I mean, it's not like they are going to have a new case of polio. It's not like they're going to be contagious or anything like that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm.
0: So that could be like some of the etiology potentially behind how like people develop post polio syndrome is maybe the presence of the, the virus still in the cerebral spinal fluid, even years later.
1: Yes, yes. And again, it's a theory and the studies that have been done on this so far have been small, um, but it's a pretty interesting.
0: And I think one thing I've heard is that those folks who have more profound motor return, potentially after polio, do they have more of a chance of developing post-polio?
1: I can't answer that question. I can tell you the people According to the literature, the people that had the most involvement, the most paralysis, the most weakness initially, are the ones that are more likely to have the the post-polio syndrome. Now, certainly, there's people that have more motor recovery than others, and maybe they didn't have as much of a loss of the lower motor neurons to start with. So that's a very difficult question to answer. But what what they what the ongoing theory was before this whole thing about the inflammation in the cerebral spinal fluid came up uh, was that because of these giant motor units, that they were not able to uh, be supplied with enough uh, nutrients and things. And there was kind of a wearing out of these giant motor units from a metabolic standpoint.
0: Mm, Okay.
1: And that some of the, some of the newer sprouts that occurred were just not as physiologically um, as strong as the original ones that were born with. um, And that those can kind of start to break down, especially when the, Um, cell body of the giant motor unit is not fed properly, basically.
0: Right. So going off of that, for, you know, we know that these motor units potentially are being overused, right? And they're larger motor units. And has there been any attempt to sort of prevent the onset of post-polio syndrome um, by like limiting the amount of use or preventing overuse in these folks?
1: a very good question and I would like to say yes, but it's it's been late in coming because mm-hmm. it it took a while to figure this out. you know when when Dr. Halstead in the 80s realized that this was going on and then he starts studying other people, you know by then you know people had already been polio survivors for 25 years or more, right? And so the damage that had been done had been done basically um and then you know as i see patients now that i've been in the clinic for a long time and um you know some patients you know i might see a patient once every 20 years or once a year or it just depends on how often they follow up and stuff mm-hmm. um the but when we see our young patients that come in mm-hmm. and now that i've worked with the you know the the 50 to 70 year olds who are now 70 and 80 you know years old or 90, um, when I see the young patients, you know, I know what these folks look like, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I will try to provide education for our younger patients um, that, you know, yes, you're doing okay now, however, please be on the lookout for these signs of muscle overuse, be on the lookout for these signs of degenerative joint changes. You know, this knee pain that you're having right now at the ripe old age of 35, you know, it -hmm. can get worse if you don't do something different. Now, maybe that's something different. You know, maybe they had an injury where, I mean, you know, a lot, there's a lot of 35 year olds that might have an injury that might need an arthroscopy or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But if, but if it's just the general wear and tear because, Oh, they bend their knee backwards, you know, to gain stability and they slam Mm -hmm. their knee back, you know, every time they take a step, you know, it's one thing if you're 35, but, you know, when you turn into a 45 year old or a 55 year old, that can cause a lot of knee problems.
0: Right. And it's so interesting too, Carolyn, I, I feel like you're in a really unique position and that you're not just seeing folks with post-polio syndrome, you're seeing folks with polio syndrome that are sort of you know, coming to you as a, a specialty clinic, right? And yes. where polio hasn't been eradicated um, in the world yet, yes. uh, and there's still incidents of it. So, yes. so unique on that education um, and that, that must differ greatly between post polio and those with polio or maybe it doesn't
1: well but it it, it does and, and if a patient comes to me in are 70 and they have they their polio history was from when they were 10 years old if they haven't gotten post polio syndrome now by now they're they're on that good side of the 50% mark mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, and so then it's just a matter of making sure that they're staying as safe as possible you know, with walking and you know um, risk of falling and and whatever it is that they're doing to keep them as healthy as possible to the end of their days, basically. But mm-hmm. unless they have another major medical issue that comes up, like a hip fracture from a fall or you know a cancer diagnosis with chemotherapy or or whatever, um, they should perk along just fine, basically, um, to the end mm-hmm. of their days.
0: Right. I was thinking we could shift towards evaluation. of these folks too, Um, and sort of, you're, you're seeing these folks with polio and post-polio syndrome. Um, Does your examination differ um, from that of a typical neurologic examination and those with other sort of neurologic diseases?
1: Um, In this clinic, because um, in this particular clinic, I do the PT examination and I provide a lot of education kind of intermingled while I'm doing the examination basically. Um, So I think that presentation is a little bit different than in a lot of other um, avenues. And also I need to get their buy-in, especially if they're a brand new patient clinic, I need to get their buy-in immediately because I might not ever see this patient again. Mm. Uh, We get patients because there's not very many post-polio clinics in the United States. uh, We get patients from obviously all over Texas, but also from other States as well. Occasionally we'll get, occasionally we'll get somebody from a foreign country, Mm -hmm. but um, I, I I need to get their buy-in. And so I'm really, I'm really um, talking to them about, you know, their history, um, you know, what is it, you know, and I get a detailed history about, you know, what their home life is like. And then I go through the classic post-polio syndrome symptoms. Mm -hmm. So do they have um, muscle um, cramping? And if they do, is it at rest or was it, or was it with, or is it with activity? Mm-hmm. You know, generally we don't see very much muscle cramping at rest in the regular population. Mm-hmm. I mean, upon occasion, yeah, you know, maybe your calf will cramp in the middle of the night, but right. you know, how often does that happen to us? You know, usually not very often, right. Um, right. but for some of these people, it could be a nightly occurrence or it could be a weekly occurrence. And we know how noxious that is do they have muscles um, twitching? And it's not like the twitching, like when you fall asleep where you kind of jerk. Mm -hmm. It's more like, you know, how when your eyes, the muscles around your eyes kind of twitch, especially if you've been reading too much or you've been on the computer too long. So they can get, you know, they can get little fasciculations and things in their skeletal muscles. And they might say, oh, no, you know, I don't have any of that. But then, as I'm stabilizing them during the manual muscle testing, I'll feel twitching Mm -hmm. in their deltoids or, you know, I'll pull up their pants legs and I can see their, you know, vastus medialis twitching, you know, Oh, I didn't know that, you know, that (laughs) kind of thing. Um, So, so, uh, do they have cold intolerance? Um, do you know what about their sleeping? Are they you know, do they wake up rested or do they wake up exhausted? How are they sleeping? And and talking about sleep hygiene activities, mm-hmm. um, you know what do you do before you go to sleep? And and you know are you tossing and turning? And you know what's keeping you up at night? Mm-hmm. Um, you know so pain can obviously interfere with your ability to sleep, but there is quite a bit of depression and anxiety in this population as well, and we know that, that can interfere with sleeping as well. Mm-hmm. Um we look at one of the big questions I always ask about falling. And then, you know, if they are falling, you know, I go into detail about well, you know, what were the circumstances of your fall and you know what were you mm-hmm. doing when you fell and you know those kinds of things. Um, you know, how many injuries have you had because of a fall, mm-hmm. all that. And then if they're not falling, I also ask them in detail about near falls because we know if they're stumbling and that kind of thing, that they're that fall, you know, is coming. Mm-hmm. And so then I go into a manual muscle test um, and not just problematic areas, but I do a full body um, upper and lower uh, manual muscle test. Um, mm-hmm. I look at their posture and sitting and or standing as appropriate. And, uh, you know, there's a high prevalence of scoliosis. There's a high prevalence of length discrepancies in this population mm-hmm. um, because of the orthopedic surgeries they had with, you know, tendon lengthenings and uh, tendon transfers and those kinds of things. There's all kinds of, um, different deformities that can be present. Um, I was curious then,
0: about that, like sort of what led to those leg length discrepancies. You you described it a bit there. So is mostly like the orthopedic surgeries they had. Does it have to do with like muscle development during like their development? As all of function? the uh,
1: yeah, all of the above. In mm-hmm. that um, we know that muscles. I'm sorry, um, bones grow in response to muscles pulling on them.
0: Right. And right. when
1: you have asymmetric paralysis then it's very common for one leg to be weaker and one leg to be stronger. And so the stronger leg tended to grow bigger and faster. Um, The orthopedic surgeons back in the day were very skilled at, you know, really following the kids and, you know, trying to determine when their growth spurts, uh, were, were predicted to happen, but also when they were actually happening. And so you'll see um, a number of them will have their growth plates stapled on the stronger side to stunt the growth on that side to try to allow the other side to um, catch up. Good. So they would not have as many length discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And for the most part, I think that they did a very good job with their professional judgment or the professional guessing in that regard. Mm -hmm. Upon occasion, I'll have a patient where maybe they just missed it a little bit where all of a sudden this weaker leg is now a little bit longer, um, which, but that, you know, thankfully didn't happen very much.
0: Right. Um, And before we get too far into sort of the objective testing too, I just wanted to go back to the subjective and Mm -hmm. it sounds like you need to get a very detailed history, right? Like with um, many of our patients, but you're asking very specific questions unique to their symptoms. One of the symptoms I've seen with post-polio syndrome is, is fatigue um, being very prevalent. And I'm wondering if you take like an activity inventory too and try to understand what their day looks like and how that might contribute to their fatigue or if there are any other specific questions that, to fatigue that you may ask.
1: I think that's a very good question. And I could probably do a better job at that clinically. Um, I'm not using a, a standardized measure. Of fatigue in the clinic on a routine basis, in um, a couple of the research projects that I've done before, I have used the fatigue severity scale um, from a research standpoint. Um, bottom line is, I know they're tired, <laughs> and um, I do ask them, you know, like so if they're if they're walking, for example, and their walking is limited, okay, are you is is it because your leg muscles? are getting tired and then you feel like now your knee is kind of wobbly that Mm -hmm. kind of fatigue or is it kind of a whole body type fatigue Mm -hmm. and there is um especially if we think back to my earlier comment about the encephalitis component Mm -hmm. um there can be kind of like a hitting the wall type fatigue and there can be kind of like a brain fog fatigue that can happen as Mm -hmm. well and so that's something that we need to ask about because obviously that can greatly impact somebody's ability to work and to participate in, you know, social activities and, and those kinds of things as well.
0: Right. Absolutely. I'm sure education becomes like a really important piece there, too.
1: Right. Right. And talking about energy conservation strategies and, um, and, and you know, again, they don't they don't want to be. They were, for lack of better words, they were brainwashed as young people because, you know, we have to remember historically that the polio epidemic happened in the United States well, well before. Um, disability rights activists were strong, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and disabilities were simply not accepted or acceptable, and there was a the big stigma that went with it. Um, so they they work exceedingly hard to get out of their wheelchairs and get out of their braces, yeah. and so we see a lot of very we call it type A plus personality, very you know. Um, hardworking. Uh, according to the literature, there's more, the, the polio population has more college educated people in their population than in the general population. Okay. Um, and, you know, time after time, you know, like these people tell me what their daily schedules are. It's like, okay, I'm exhausted and I don't have a history of polio, <laughs> you know, listening to some of their schedules, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. I've, I've had one, two patients with post-polio syndrome and you mentioned being resistive to like assistive devices and help. And that's certainly something that I've encountered too. And it's just interesting to consider as we've developed as a culture and accepting and sort of helping um, this population and sort of their, their own perception. So it's something, of course we have to navigate, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I give a lecture to um, my entry-level students. And then when I work with the neuro residents, um, that are local and it's part of my lectures with them and I give an example of the manual muscle testing scores for this one gentleman I had and at the time that I first saw him he was in his late 50s and he was a consultant businessman person and he was you know going and seeing clients at their at their offices and their places of business and things and he was in and out of his car all the time and he was having ex- a lot of back pain and you know some leg pain and all this And so he's telling me about all this stuff and you know, he comes in and he's got a straight cane. I was like, okay, he's got a straight cane. So I muscle test this guy. He had zeros, ones and twos throughout his two lower extremities. He had not a single three in his leg or anything higher. I'm like, holy moly. (laughs) And he was falling, you know, and that was one of the reasons why he had back pain because he had fallen and hurt his back. And so I said, so what if you had more support? You know, what if you had a pair of crutches And the way he walked, he was completely and totally relying on his ligaments and things. And I thought, if I even tried to put braces on him, I would completely disrupt his compensatory mechanisms. And then he wouldn't be able to walk at all properly.
0: Maybe we could go into that a little bit now, too, in terms of bracing. What are some of the unique components of bracing for for this population? And are there recommendations for, for types of braces?
1: Well, you know, there, there there's so many options that are out there. And of course, with the uniqueness of each of these people, um, there's no, you know, one brace that fits all type thing. And, and like rarely, rarely, rarely will I order anything that's off the shelf. Um, these folks almost all the time need a custom orthosis if they're going to need an orthosis. Um, And that has to do with the number of like bony deformities where, you know, you've got these little bones that are sticking out in various places, but also their weakness patterns are such that they just need more support in certain areas and maybe less support in other areas, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, thankfully the um, advancements and the funding sources that pay for prosthetics is finally starting to carry over into the orthotic world. And Mm -hmm. and some of the technologies that have been around in prosthetics for a long time are now available for our patients with orthoses. And so that's enabled us to go into more of the um, carbon fiber um, designs that are lighter weight, but stronger than the plastics. Mm -hmm. So that's been a big um, advantage for us. Um, Another big technological advance that has occurred is the use of Um, having with the KAFOs, the knee ankle foot orthoses, having the ability to utilize what's called stance control features, where the brace is unlocked when they're going through swing phase and then it's able to lock while they're in stance phase. Um, And those can be, um, there's different types of stance control um, designs. And some of them have to do with the position of the ankle in a certain position. Some of it has to do with um, the, you know, the line of gravity and where the knee is in space related to gravity. Um, one of the newer ones is a computer controlled um, brace, wow. which is really super way cool. So it's kind of the equivalent of like a C-leg with a prosthesis. Okay. Okay. Um, as far as the technology, obviously it operates very differently, but this brace actually has what they call stumble recovery. So that if the person um, lands wrong or trips or stumbles, where that can cause their knee to get thrown forward, it'll actually stop how much the knee can flex and allow the person enough time to get their other foot hopefully underneath them so that they don't fall, which wow. is absolutely amazing. The, the disadvantage to this particular brace is that it's incredibly expensive and not very well funded. Um, and right. it also, because of the computer um, componentry that's at the knee, it tends to be a heavier KFO as well. So um, some people are not able to use it because of a weight standpoint. Um, the other stance control braces that don't have the computer control, like if you have somebody that has a flail leg or a leg that has no motor function, they're not going to be able to operate the stance control. You have to have some motor function to be able to basically tell the brace it's OK to let my knee bend again. And it does require gait training. Um, you know, a lot of the other braces, you just kind of put the brace on them and they may or may not need gait training.
0: Right. So it sounds like some of the lightweight features for the carbon fiber bracing is a really good advantage now. Sounds like the stance control features are really popular too or a great yes. benefit. Um what about in terms of like hyperextension too of the knee? Is it, you know, is, yes. does that come into play a lot or oh, absolutely. discrepancies <laughs> as well? I would
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So so with the hyperextended knee, um frequently, frequently we will get a KFO for that. Uh, a lot of patients are, well, can I just put this knee support on? Mm-hmm. And then I have to go through the, well, you know, because, you know, of course we all see athletes wearing knee braces of different kinds, right? Well, the thing with the athletes is they have lots of muscles to hold the brace on and up in the position. And every patient I've had that has tried to get a knee brace just on their own. They just don't have the muscle bulk to hold the brace into position and basically it's sliding down all the time. Um, and so that can, you know, uh, irritate you. You know, it just bothers you because you're constantly having to bend down and pull it up. So even if they don't need very much ankle support, we do use a KAFO designs just so that the bottom part of the brace can kind of hold the rest of it up. But this patient would utilize what's called a posterior offset knee joint. And if they're walking on level surfaces or walking uphill, they can walk with their knee actually unlocked. And the the key thing with that posterior offset knee joint is that um, the the knee, it should be allowed to hyperextend just a little bit Mm -hmm. and, and maybe just like five degrees or so. Okay. It doesn't have to be very far and certainly not anywhere close to the painful ranges. I mean, you know, I'll see patients that bend their knees backwards, twenty-three degrees hmm. pretty commonly. Um, I think the worst patient I've seen, he was actually only 26 when I saw him, he had never worn braces and he, in weight bearing, he hyperextended a good 75 degrees. I mean, oh my gosh, it was really, really bad. Oh, okay. Um, so, so yeah, so the posterior offset knee joint is yeah. used unlocked when people are on smooth level surfaces or walking uphill now if they are going to be walking on like a gravel driveway or you know with grass with clumps or walking downhill Mm -hmm. um, that brace can give way because anything that goes underneath the heel would tend to throw their knee forward and cause them to buckle so Mm -hmm. if they are um, going to be encountering those different types of surfaces i will have that brace with um drop locks or retaining locks where you know there's that little spring activated thing that they have to actually push it down or that way they can walk with it unlocked most of the time but then they can lock it if they're going to be in those more challenging situations the most common type of brace that we that i tend to order is um a floor reaction or ground reaction design brace uh, Mm -hmm. where most of the most of the plastic or the carbon fiber is going to be in the front mm-hmm. um, where, and really trying to train them to lean into the brace, mm-hmm. um, especially with the as much uh, plantar flexor weakness as we have in this population. And then that's a brace. If it has a joint, it's very easy to have a dorsiflexion assist to help them pick their foot up as well. And then tying that to a well, uh, a well fitted shoe um, mm-hmm. uh, that can have a rocker to allow them to rock, over their forfeit um, would be a good thing,
0: right? So it's a lot of considerations, and yeah. definitely sounds like unique to every patient. And so it sounds like you're you're considering bracing. You're also looking at at strength. You mentioned and like your objective exam. Um, are there other pieces to your examination that you're trying to look at too, and and trying to cover?
1: Well, you know, certainly I do a gait analysis, and it's just an observational gait analysis. Um, I was doing a six minute walk test on a routine basis, but with um, our, my new time constraints in the clinic in the way that it's running now. Um, at this time, I'm doing a hundred foot walk test where they walk down this hall for 50 feet, make a U-turn and come back. And I time that. And so I can calculate velocity with that. And it also gives me a chance to look at how they do their turns with or without their devices and that kind of thing. And my instructions are, to walk as fast as you can without putting yourself at risk for falling. And then I tend to have clinics on Mondays, so no falls on Mondays. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they always get, you know, kind of a laugh out of that. But, you know, I I want them not to just stroll down the hall. I want to see, you know, a good effort. Now, certainly if they are like filing for disability or if they've had a denial for a power wheelchair or something like that, then I will do a six-minute walk test. Or something that can that way I can really document um, their fatigue and you know how they slow down in their velocity. Um, typically, typically we'll see more pain complaints towards the end of the six minute walk test. Mm-hmm. And so, and, I, and I'll tell patients, you know, tell me, you know, anytime you're know, like, what is your pain level right now in your sacroiliac joint or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. And they'll tell me, okay, so then you know, another minute, okay, what is your pain level now? You know, and just you know, like that.
0: Right. And so, I, I don't,
1: yeah, I don't do like five times sit to stands or 30 no. seconds sit to stands because, you know, they might be able to, well, one, they might not be able to get up from a chair without using their arms to start with. But right. because of their weakness patterns being kind of all over the place, that doesn't really give me a good clinical picture.
0: Right. So, like a very specific manual muscle testing and grading becomes, sounds like essential. Yes. yes. Um, all right. So, you know, now we can kind of look at sort of treatment interventions, which, of course, it seems like there's a, a scarcity, you know, in the research, too, for, for, for evidence to, to treat this population. And I'm sure it's also evolved over the years as well, in sort of our understanding of the disease. So could you dive into some of the details around, like, specific treatment interventions?
1: You're absolutely right. There is a scarcity of evidence. There are a very, very few, very small studies. Um, one study, they looked at a strengthening protocol for the, I think it was the abductor digiti minimi of the hand, or it was a thumb muscle or something. It's like, okay, that's gonna, you know, translate into what I want to do functionally with this patient a lot, right? Right. Um, there, there was a pretty interesting study quite a long time ago, um, with patients with shoulder pain and trying to put them on a lower extremity strengthening program. So they didn't have to use their arms so much. And that was kind of an interesting study, but again, it was a very small study. There, um, uh, was a study done in the past several years by a group out of the Netherlands, a Dr. Vorn, V, V as in Victor, V. O-O-R-N, mm-hmm. and his group, um, and they've looked at um, some exercise programs and also looking at patients being able to rate their levels of exertion, and um, one in their patient population, they felt like the exercise might not have been incredibly helpful as far as increasing strength, but it was tolerated by the patients, and they felt like their ratings of perceived exertion were... Um, an appropriate measure to use. I think one of the things that is challenging when we read these studies, and this has been in some of the um, guideline papers that have been published, that, you know, people who exercise tend to be doing better than people who are not exercising. But we also have to keep in mind that the people that are signing up for exercise studies are probably a different population than the ones that are not signing up for exercise studies. And when you look at the the inclusion criteria for these studies, you know, oh, by the way, they need to be able to walk and they need to be able to do this and they need to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. That will in and of itself exclude quite a few patients. Um, And so again, it's, it's very hard, but you know, one of the things I try to impart to my patients is that um, post-polio one, you know, once people have healed from the polio, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a neurodegenerative disease. And with post-polio syndrome, yes, that is neurodegenerative, but it doesn't mean that the patients have to get worse. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of patients in the clinic that, that um, once they've been to us and they've been able to enact some of the lifestyle modifications or, you know, starting to use some equipment and those kinds of things, um, they wind up in a new steady state. They have a new plateau. Mm-hmm. And then some of them, you know, that maybe they've been plateaued for, you know, a couple of years or five years. It's like, you know, I'm interested in resuming some exercise. What do you think? well, you know what? You've been stable for a couple of years. How about let's go for it? Let's go for it carefully, but let's go for it. And, and you're really encouraging them to use their common sense and to listen to their bodies. Um, For so long, you know, I mentioned the word brainwashing earlier, but for so long they were told, you know, you just got to do it and you've got to do it better than everybody else. You you push through the pain. Uh, Nobody wants to hear you whining. Mm -hmm. Just you know you just got to do it. And so now if they if they've learned how to listen to their body and and to kind of modulate their activities accordingly, then they can do very very well. Right. Of course, yes, we do have a, a few clients that come in that, you know, it just seems like they are continuing to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but really they're more the exception than the rule. That I'm happy to be, say.
0: Right, and that must be so encouraging and empowering to, to tell folks, too, that there's a potential for stability, there's a potential for improvement as well, too, um, and knowing that they can probably self-manage their disease better. Yes. It sounds like you you provide them those skills, which is fantastic.
1: That's that's one of my goals, is to teach them how to manage this.
0: One thing I wanted to ask you, Carolyn, is if there's any like patient resources or groups that we can help patients with post-polio connect with,
1: so Post Polio Health International is a Internet It's an international organization. It's based out of St. Louis, Missouri. And that is, I think, the best resource that they can go to it. Um, there's a membership fee, but you can apply for a scholarship and and not have to pay a membership fee. And it's a nominal me- membership fee. But their website has a lot of good information on it. There are um, virtual town hall meetings. There are um, that they have a newsletter that comes out every couple of months. And there's um, ask the psychologist questions. There's ask the doctor questions. There's always a lead article that's written by. Uh, somebody who's knowledgeable, whether it's a physician or a physical therapist or an orthotist or even a polio survivor about a certain topic. Um, there's also uh, funding that's available through the organization for people who need help paying for orthoses, for large orthoses. So that can be a helpful resource. Um, there's blogs and things. Mm-hmm. There's a group in the Northeast that follows uh, Richard Bruno, Mm B-R-U-N-O. And he's written a book called The Polio Paradox. And although the book was written in 2000, so obviously now it's more than 20 years old, there's a lot of really good chapters in that book that I continue to refer people to. And it's not a book that a person needs to read starting at chapter one and going all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. But there's a very nice chapter that explains sleep problems in people that I refer them to. Mm-hmm. There's a very nice nutrition chapter that's in there that talks about the nutritional needs of people that have post polio syndrome. That's I think very helpful. There's a uh, social media groups that mm-hmm. go with that. And, you know, one of the things I try to tell my patients is just be careful about the social media things that you look at, because as we know, there are people that are trying to be helpful, but maybe providing information that um, is not really accurate. I think one of the biggest things that that we really try to encourage our patients to be mindful about is to recognize what is related to their history of polio Mm -hmm. and what is something else that needs to be diagnosed and maybe treated. For example, the most common thing I can think of is because um, because the polio affected the anterior motor, uh, the the anterior horn cells, which is lower motor neurons. So if they're having any sensory issues, that's not a polio thing. Right. And so that means that something else is going on. And what is that something else? You know, is it is it um, a, a diabetic neuropathy? Is it a peripheral neuropathy? Is it um, a radiculopathy, you know, and some of these things can be treated and it's Mm -hmm. important to get things that can be treated, taken care of. Um, but some people tend to blame everything on their history of polio, which is not appropriate, or, you know, maybe they, you know, now they're getting dizzy. Well, you know, um, Mm -hmm. polio doesn't cause dizziness, you know, what else could be going on? Or now I'm having memory problems. Well, you know, what else could be going on? And certainly again, the depression and anxiety issues, those need to be diagnosed. They need to be treated.
0: Right. Like, yeah, very important for these patients to be in tune with their mm-hmm. symptoms and yes. to know exactly sort of what's consistent with polio or not and to watch out for Dr. Google.
1: Right. <laughs> and and for them to take care of their well stuff, like their well woman themes and, you know, to have their bone scans done on a regular basis and, you know, their nutritional needs and all the stuff that we're all supposed to do. I mean, they super duper need to do it.
0: Right. Oh, those are great. I'm excited to share some of those resources with my patients too. It's always nice to have those. Um, And then Carolyn, just to finish up here, I wanted to ask you if there's one thing you wanted clinicians to know about treating folks with post-polio syndrome. I know that's a big ask after every great piece of information that you shared with with us. um, What what would it be?
1: To listen to the patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Pick, put on your big listening ears um one of the challenging things is once because these people if they haven't seen anybody that knows anything about polio before they've been shut down a lot mm-hmm. um and maybe patronized and those kinds of things um now one of the challenging things is once they start to open up then it's like this waterfall of stuff and then it may be hard to get a whole lot done in your typical physical therapy session mm-hmm. but if you can listen to them and learn from them because one they know their body better than any of us do mm-hmm. i think that's the one most important thing um and then and and you know, while they're resting from whatever activities they're doing, you know that can be when you can kind of you know chat a little bit. And I just have one story that I have to share with you before we go. I know we're running out of time, but I was talking to this one lady, and she was telling me her story. And she um, had caught polio as a toddler. Like she had already learned how to walk, and then the polio took away her ability to walk. And you know, back then, a lot of people didn't have clothes dryers, so they would hang their clothes out on the clothesline in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. And I don't remember if she had gone to the hospital as an infant or, you know, if she'd been treated at home or whatever. But anyway, her mom is hanging clothes up on the clothesline and she's mm-hmm. and you know she's not able to walk anymore. And so this mom took because back then they just had cloth diapers, mm-hmm. took this cloth diaper and basically made it like a harness with it and took some string no and basically tied her to the clothesline. And then she was able to stand up. Oh, my right? God. And then, you know, the clothesline has a little bit of a give to it. So she was able to kind of like bounce a little bit. And so mm-hmm. she was doing like little self leg exercises and toddlers. <laughs> you know, kids are wired to move, right? Yeah. And so then she started getting better and started trying to step. So then her mom, instead of using clothespins on the clothesline, she got some shower curtain rings mm-hmm. and did the rings to the strings, and so then she was able to walk up and down the length of the clothesline. Oh
0: my gosh, body weight supported clothesline
1: exactly. <laughs> and I said, Is your mom still alive right now? She goes, No, she passed. And I said, Oh, well, when you get to heaven, please tell her that she was 50 years ahead of her time because <laughs> you know, facilities and clinics are paying a lot of money for some really mm-hmm. fancy equipment that this lady was doing, just you know, just trying to figure out a way to help her child, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yes, this is a a, a bunch of people that, you know, again, most of them were children when they caught the polio, but, uh, and they had to develop, you know, resilience to get through the times that they did and everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the parents had to be creative. And, you know, how do you raise this child with a disability when nobody else around you has kids with disabilities? And, you know, they didn't have support groups back then. and They didn't have internet back then. And, Mm -hmm. you know, their child might've been, you know, one of, two in their entire city that you know had things so um the the the, the story, th-
0: story oh my gosh yeah yeah it's so funny too like you said ahead of her time <laughs> um and then carolyn we have a tradition here on the dd sig um that we like to ask all of our guests what they like to do when they're not practicing pt
1: i love to travel and i love to hike and i love to hike when i travel
0: Nice, I like it. Are there nice hiking spots around the Houston area or more like you have to travel to get to those hiking spots?
1: You know, there's a lot of places I still need to go, but so far, my favorite places have been Banff National Park and Big Bend National Park. Um, and then I love to walk along the beach as well.
0: Yeah, Uh, I share that with you absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on, Carolyn. This was fantastic. I certainly learned a lot and I'm sure all our listeners are going to learn just as much. Um, that was great. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. And please, if any of the listeners want to contact me directly, mm-hmm. they can contact me through my my um, email through the university at cdasilva at tw.edu. I have random people call, calling me and emailing me on a regular basis about stuff.
0: Perfect. That's awesome, Carolyn. We'll definitely share that. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Carolyn De Silva. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. For more information on this SIG and the ANPT, visit www.neuropt.org. Our podcast team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Christina Burke, Arm Paget, Jeff Schmidt, Shannon Brown, and I am Ken Vinacco. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music, and please share this episode with a colleague today. Don't worry, Caroline. I'll provide plenty of bloopers for us. So. <laughs> <laughs> Likely, so no pressure there.
1: I'm sorry.
0: That's all right. That's why we're not doing it live.
1: Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so much for yeah. me looking like I knew what I'm doing, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, yeah, Ken in Rhode Island doesn't try to compete with us up in Boston, so we're good. <laughs> I'm in charge of two children right now who are sleeping, so if you see me run away. Oh, no. Come back.